Thanks, Amy. If you want to open up your outlines, uh, you'll see a detailed outline there. I'm going to point you to where we're at on the way through. That was a joke. There's no detailed outline. But uh, I'll help you as we go through. But I want to begin by asking you a question tonight. I want if you ever stop to think about what do you expect life to be like? Have you ever thought of that? What do I expect life to be like? I mean, all of us, we, we have our hopes and dreams, don't we? You know, things that we wish life was like, those things that probably a little bit out of the ordinary, a bit great, but we still have them as hopes and dreams, like owning a cruise ship, or maybe, maybe a house with a great water view, or enough money that we never have to worry about anything. You know, that'd be awesome, but we don't kind of expect those things, do we? Uh, then we have this kind of normal picture of the things that we expect, the kinds of expectations of what life ought to be like, that when they're not met, they get us down and we get frustrated. Now, I don't think there are many people that get up each day angry that they don't have a cruise ship yet. I mean, if that's you, maybe we should chat afterwards. We'll chat about normal expectations of what we, we should have. But when health issues get us down again, when our freedoms are encroached, or relationships that should work out just aren't working out, we find ourselves frustrated, don't we? Why is the world like this? It doesn't feel like it ought to be that way. And we find ourselves angry at the way the world has turned out for us. My question tonight is, where do we get those expectations from? Those expectations of, well, this is what the world should be like for me. And what should we expect life to be like as humans? And what should we expect life to be like as Christians? Well, the next two letters that we read about in, in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the ones that Amy just read for us, we meet two groups of people, and they're in very different situations than we are in right now. They're people who look, for all intents and purposes, much worse than our life situation looks. Yet they're described in much better terms than we would usually describe ourselves. What we're going to see tonight is that the key to evaluating life and our expectations of it come from listening to the one who made it and sustains it and is bringing it to its completion. As we see the world and our expectations of it through the eyes of our maker, we're going to see that our expectations of life ought to be much worse than they currently are and much better than we currently think. So let's stop and ask God tonight to shape us by His Word, that we might see the world through His eyes. Let's pray together. Lord God, You know what our weeks have been like. You know the ups and downs of what's been going on for us. You know the areas that we've found hard and the areas that have been full of joy and happiness. We ask tonight that as we hear Your Word, that You would speak to us by Your Spirit that you would shape our view of the world and our expectations of it in line with your view, that you would do a great work in us tonight so that we might walk away having heard you and being changed by your view of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first point we're going to look at tonight is who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? You can write that down. It's a freebie. Because the first thing that we need to recognize as we come to these letters, is the one who writes these words. 
Chapter 2, verse 8. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Or chapter 3, verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Thus says the holy one, the true one, the one who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. The one who writes these words to these churches is the same one who writes these words to us today. He's the one who is the first and the last. In Colossians 1, Paul describes him like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So we might come to have first place in everything. In other words, as we listen to the words of these letters to these two churches and to us here tonight, we're listening to the words of our maker. The very definition of God is is the one who is the first mover, if you understand that philosophical concept. In the 5th century, the philosopher Parmenides, he he famously said that nothing comes from nothing. In other words, there has to be some first mover if there's things in existence. There must be something to to kick it off, to to make it work. Something can't come about out of existence from from nothing. And the claim of John and the claim of the Apostle Paul is that that first mover is Jesus. The one whose words we're hearing tonight is the one who made you and me. But he's also the last. He's the final word. He's in control of the trajectory of the whole universe. He's described in chapter 3 as the Holy One. Now, holy just means so different, so other, so perfect and pure. And if you think about the level of control you and I have over the world we live in, there's not much. Sure, we can voice command some lights now. I can make my kettle turn on with my voice, right? But in terms of controlling the universe, controlling what happens, I've got nothing but this one. The one whose words we hear is so different because he controls it all. But not only that, this one is the truth. See, none of us here tonight can say we are the truth. I am truth. I mean, has anyone ever said that? You shouldn't. Again, come and chat with me. Like, we, you kind of, we don't do that. We might know the truth or we might speak the truth. But John and Jesus both claim he is truth. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 14, 6. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This one that we're listening to defines truth. He sets what's right and what's not. He holds the constants of the universe in his hands. There is no one like him. But even more than that, Jesus tells us that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. Now, as I got to that bit, as we read through the passage, I'm kind of like, what's going on here? Like, who's David and why has Jesus got his key? I mean, did you think that? What is this key of David? No, No one thought that? No one was sitting here going, who is this guy? Well, the best that we can say is there's a door and this guy called David has a key to it. But it's a, it's a really heavy door because it, Jesus can open it with a key, but no one can close. And he can close it, but no one 
can open it, right? That's what you're kind of thinking. But what's actually going on here is Jesus is quoting part of the Old Testament, Isaiah 20, verse 22. Sorry, 22, verse 20. Have a look at it on the screen. On that day, Isaiah says, speaking of, of God's word to Israel, On that day I will call for my servant Elikim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him. And he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. What's on view here is a ruler, the ruler of God's people. This one is coming. And listen to what he gets, verse 22. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a throne of honor for his father's family. In other words, Isaiah, as he spoke of Elohim, was actually pointing forward to Jesus. David was the king God had put in place over his people, the Old Testament people called the Jews. And the key of David for who is in his kingdom and who isn't has been given to Jesus. Jesus is the one who determines who can enter into God's kingdom and who can't. Tonight, before we form any opinions on the content of what Jesus says to these churches, before we work out what life could be like or should be like or what our expectations are of life, we must recognize who is talking to us. Because as we meet Jesus, we're meeting our creator and sustainer, the one who is in authority over all people, the king, the truth, the one who determines our eternal destiny. And he does that by his death and resurrection. He's come and died in our place and risen again and offered life to all. He's the only one who's been through death and he's alive to speak about it today. Jesus introduces himself this way so we can understand who it is that is speaking to us tonight. Because if you miss who this is, it's so easy to think, oh, I know better than him. It's so easy to start thinking that. I'm going to start calling the shots in my own life. I'm going to set my expectations of what life ought to be like. And I'm going to set my own direction about what I ought to do in my life. But when you recognize who it is that is speaking to us, then we recognize it's time to shut our mouths and open our ears and listen. A number of years ago, I heard a story about our three young kind of punks in Detroit in the 1930s. Uh, they jumped on a bus and they liked heckling people on the bus. They would sit on the back seat and, and kind of make fun of people. And as they got on, there was a guy kind of sitting halfway up the bus, kind of slouched over a little bit with a hat on. And throughout the bus journey, these guys thought they'd, they'd start hassling, hassling him some more. They started calling out names and kind of throwing bits of paper at him. And the guy just didn't move the whole way. And they're still doing it until the bus came to a stop and the man stood up. The three guys at that point were a little bit scared because he was a lot bigger than what they originally had thought. He was also a lot wider than what they originally thought. Before he got off the bus, he turned and walked up to the back seat of the bus and handed them a piece of paper. They're all sitting there thinking, oh, what have we done? He then turned around, walked off the bus, and off the bus went. The three guys sitting at the back are like, oh, what's on the bit of paper? They flip it open on the other side and find that it's a business card. And on that business card, it just had three words. Joe Lewis, boxer. Now, Joe wasn't just any boxer. He was the man who would become the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. 
The International Boxing Research Organization places him as the number one boxer of all time ahead of the second place position called Muhammad Ali. Right? There are times in life when mistaking someone's identity can have catastrophic consequences, aren't there? Tonight, as we hear the words of Jesus, he's not trying to scare us. He's not trying to make us afraid of who he is. He just wants us to know who he's speaking so we might view our lives in light of his word. So we might not stand and say, I think I know what's best. But we might look at life through his eyes. See, unless you have a big vision of Jesus, his words are not going to have any impact on your life. Unless you have a big vision of Jesus, his words won't have any impact on your life. So let me ask you today, is this your picture of Jesus? The one who is in control of it all? The one who was first and last, who has died and risen again, who has the keys to the kingdom of God? Is that your picture of him? Do you come to him as your maker and your creator and the sustainer of life? The one who holds the keys to your future? The one who is the authority of all? Well, as Jesus speaks... He speaks to two separate churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, these are, these are real churches, uh, just like the last two churches we looked at last week and, um, in, in the first kind of letter to the churches section. And they're in modern-day Turkey. And the way the book of Revelation would have worked in modern-day Turkey would have been, as John wrote this down, it would have then been circulated amongst these seven churches, would have been passed around. And like any photograph when you first get it, what's the first thing you do when you look at a photograph? You're like, where am I? Right? You, you look for yourself in the picture. So these, these churches in Turkey would have gone, where's our section? And would have flipped through and seen what Jesus said to them. But then they would have gone back and looked at what he said to the other churches and been able to learn from them as well, just like you and I tonight can learn from what has gone on in each of these churches. And what we see as Jesus comes to these two churches and why we group them together is because they both touch on the same theme. And that's this. Jesus knows our hardship and pain. That's point number two tonight. Jesus knows our hardship and pain. Our expectation of life and how we view ourselves is shaped really by what we think. And Jesus knows what life is really like. So there are only two letters to the churches that don't say anything negative at all about the churches. And it's these two churches. Jesus' words here are entirely encouraging. They're reassuring, right? And we have so much to learn from the perspective Jesus gives on how we view life and our expectations of it. Listen to what Jesus says about their experience of life and maybe compare it with your own experience of life. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 9 and hear about Smyrna. Jesus says this, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Or come with me to Philadelphia, 3 verse 8. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. Because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here are two churches that have taken Jesus at his word. They've let his word shape their lives. Unlike Ephesus and Pergamum, look last week where, where one had truth but not love and the other had love but not truth. These two churches have let Jesus' word shape everything they do and say. Though they're not powerful churches or outwardly impressive churches, they have not denied Jesus' name. 
Now, what do you expect a church who doesn't deny the name of Jesus to look like? Kind of think over that. What is, what is a church that says, yeah, I'm going to stick it out for Jesus through it all? What do you expect that to be? Well, often our expectation is that if you live life according to the one who made you, if you take his word seriously, you're going to live the blessed life, right? Hashtag blessed. If you live the way that God made us to live, surely it's going to be great. You can see the Instagram feed, church of the seriously focused, non-denying Jesus church. That'd be their name or something cooler. That'd be their feed. And you can see the feeds that are coming up. House with a water view, hashtag blessed. Next thing is, best spouse ever, hashtag blessed. My new cruise ship, hashtag blessed. We think the life of a church who does not deny the name of Jesus and puts him at the center, often we think that life will be the the life of our dreams. But there are two things that these two churches show us about the hashtag blessed life. Number one, our dreams are way too small. We settle for so little. We get excited about things like the view of the sea or, or a cruise ship or all the wealth that we have when there is so much more on offer. And secondly, that our timing is all wrong. Putting Jesus' word first will result in incredible blessing. And we're going to see that in a moment. But here and now in this life, putting Jesus first comes with incredible sacrifice and affliction. Come with me, chapter 2, verse 10. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you'll experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The faithful Christian life looks like a life of sacrifice and suffering. That's the expectation of life for the faithful Christian. For Smyrna and Philadelphia, the suffering was caused from those who claimed to be the people of God. And that's even worse. Have you felt that when the people that you love and that you think should be on your side aren't and you don't expect it and then you get the slap from the left? You're like, wow, that really hurt. You expect it from your enemies, but not from the people who love God. These Jews were were the people of the true and living God. They trusted him, but now they'd rejected Jesus. They didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus calls these Jews who've rejected him people from the synagogue of Satan. Right? How's that for a hashtag? You know, this is what I think of you. You're from the synagogue of Satan. Now, the synagogue was a place where Jews used to worship God. It's a place where the scriptures were read and people worshiped the true and living God. But for these Jews, they saw Christianity as a cult because they did not see Jesus as God. And so the Jews wanted to make it hard work for these Christians. Now, the way that that worked in the first century, the way that Jews could exist with Romans is that as Rome came in and invaded cities, um, they would do a God swap with the cities that they invaded. You're like, what's that? Well, that's where you rock up, where you're Rome, and you're like, oh, look, I want to have these people live in harmony with us. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce some of our Roman gods to this city we're invading, and say, you should take some of our gods, have some of our gods, and we want to take some of your gods. We want to kind of adopt some of your practices because we're kind of polytheistic. We think there are many gods and we're fine with it. And so we kind of do a God swap with the nations around them. Now, why did they do that? Well, it was the best insurance policy ever. See, if the nation they invaded prayed to their God to say, take out the Romans, 
the Romans will be praying to the same God. Hey, leave us here. And so if they're both praying to the same God, it cancelled each other out and they wouldn't get taken out and so there'd be peace. That's what the Romans thought. Now, they did that with every foreign nation except one, the Jews. And that's because from the Romans' perspective, the Jews were weird. They really were. They refused to acknowledge that any other God existed. And even that theirs, there could be no image or or idol made of their God. No Roman had ever seen their God. You couldn't see an image of him. And so basically the the Jews, sorry, basically the Romans thought the Jews were like an atheist who didn't really have a God, but worshipped this imaginary friend in the sky type of things. And because there was no God or idol for um, the Jews to swap with the Romans, the only way for this policy to work and for them to place their bets on having harmony within the first century world was, well, to say, look, it's okay, you don't need to bow down to our emperors as God. So the Jews had this deal with Rome that they were the only people that didn't have to offer incense to worship the Roman emperor. Then when Christianity enters the scene, the Romans see Christians as just part of the whole Jewish history. They think, oh, there's some kind of form of Jew, that's fine. But the Jews hated the Christians because they didn't think Jesus was God. And so what the Jews would do is say, oh, these people that are Christians, they're not from us. They worship this man, Jesus, as God. And so the Romans would then hold the Christians accountable to worship the Roman emperor. And then when they wouldn't do it, they would punish them. They would afflict them. And the Jews would stand back and go, look at what we've done. It's no wonder Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. So because of their allegiance to Jesus, Christians had a horrific time engaging with the first century world. They couldn't join in the trade guilds in Smyrna. They were disinherited by family who thought they were crazy. Why are you worshipping this kind of, this crucified king that you think is the saviour of the world? How ridiculous is that? They refused to offer incense to the emperor and to worship the emperor. And so they were thrown into prison because they appeared to be rebelling against the Roman Empire. The normal expectation of the first century Christian was suffering for believing an alternative view of the universe. Jesus is King. The normal expectation for the first century Christian was poverty because they rejected from the world around, not because they, you know, they liked being rejected, but because they refused to give in. They refused to deny the reality that Jesus was king. And as they faced economic ruin for putting Jesus first, it was then prison and death, because they were so convinced Jesus was who he says he was, that they would not compromise on the truth. They would speak out into the world that saw incredible costs for themselves doing it, They would not stop pointing people to everyone that they met to how great Jesus is. If you have a look at the kind of spread of Christianity through the first and second century, it's crazy to see how far and wide Christianity spread and how quickly, particularly when you think that every time it spread, every single person faced persecution for sharing that news of Jesus. Why would they do it? Because they were convinced of the one who had spoken to them, that he was the first and the last that he held the key to eternity, that he was in control of the universe and he really was God. And so they pointed everyone they saw, no matter what the cost, to say, have you seen Jesus? They willingly experienced poverty and prison and death, pointing people to him. 
for us today, we, we generally don't face economic ruin for following Jesus. We don't face prison for simply saying what we believe. Sometimes that's because we censor the truth or we, we hold back on, on living out for Jesus. But at other times, it's because we've been living in the shadow of Christendom. You see, the Western world has been so dramatically affected by Christianity that so many of its morals and values have been shaped by the Bible. Our, our justice system is shaped by the Bible. The culture that we have at the moment in New Zealand of being kind is shaped from a morality of Scripture. But it won't be long before every single person in this room will have to weigh up if they speak the truth about Jesus and face prison, or they compromise the truth to avoid persecution. That's a, deci- that's a decision that's going to face every single one of us in the coming years. I mean, all you need to do now is to ask any Christian who's come from a Muslim background or country what it was like living for Jesus in that country. What... Um, persecution they experienced, what pain and poverty came from them saying, no, I trust Jesus. We live in a white picket fence Western world where we think everything is nice and that being a Christian will make life better. Hashtag blessed. That is not the future, nor should it be the present. So here in New Zealand, we're actually not that far away from facing jail. Do you know, at the moment, in New Zealand, you can face a jail sentence for offering to pray for someone with an unwanted same-sex attraction. If you pray for them to see that change, that's illegal. Even if that someone is your own child. It won't be long before we boot it out of public venues like this for simply lovingly stating what God says on the issues of heaven and hell and marriage and gender and the exclusivity of Jesus. The world around says, I don't like that, and it's going to get worse. It will increasingly be seen as hate speech. Now, it doesn't mean we should just let it go. Of course, we we should try and see the society around us change and come back to seeing the truth. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't command these people to call out their politicians, to say, this is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, I'm going to cut you down, what right do you have to do? He doesn't motivate a rebellion against the ruling authorities in the first century. He says it's going to be hard, suffer and speak the truth. The solution to the problem is to lovingly proclaim Jesus to the world, which is exactly what the first century Christians did. They spread it everywhere. And that slowly and slowly, over the next 300 years, saw more and more people converted until, in some sense, Constantine in the 4th century BC was a Christian. The Roman emperor became a Christian. And human history has had ups and downs of the gospel going out, making headway and being pushed back in some ways, all at God's plan. He's in control of every single moment of it. But the solution to the world isn't political reign, but gospel proclamation. That is what sees changed hearts, the news of the one who died in our place and rose again, that he is king. And as we, like Smyrna and Philadelphia, point people to the one who holds the keys of David, the one who died in our place and offered forgiveness, Jesus says, expect to suffer. But suffering isn't all Jesus promises for those who trust in Him. Point number three tonight is Jesus' promises. Jesus' promises. 3 verse 9. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. 
Firstly, Jesus promises that many of those who persecute these first century churches who are Jews will actually come back to Jesus. They will come back and see that these, these churches in, in these two cities of Smyrna and Philadelphia are, are true Christians, are truly trust the true and living God. They will see that Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the true Jew. You want to see this in more detail, you need to look up a bit later, Romans 9. It speaks about it in detail to see this time where um, the Jews would reject Jesus and then God would bring in the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They'd accept the Jews would then be um, jealous. And so they would then be like, oh, we want to come back to Christ. And then he would bring in more um, Gentiles and other Jews would reject. And it's like a big round cycle that keeps going round and it's still been going round of God bringing in his people. But the key thing to note here. For these two churches, is that the persecution, it's worth it. It's worth not compromising. It's worth sticking to the truth lovingly and compellingly. It's worth experiencing sacrifice and suffering, pain and poverty for the, for the spread of the gospel, even amongst your enemies. The synagogue of Satan might try and hack them down. But Jesus will make those who trust in him a pillar in God's temple. They might be in the synagogue, but God's eternal temple is there. And he's bringing people back into that and seeing the foundational aspect of those who keep trusting in him. The picture of the future allows Jesus to say something about these churches that we would normally never say about ourselves. I mean, you look at how much pain and suffering they are in and how much poverty they're experiencing for holding true to the gospel. But Jesus says of them, they are rich. Did you see that? He said they're rich. Look at 2 verse 9. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I'm like, has Jesus missed what's going on? They're getting put in prison. In fact, he's told them they're going to get put in prison. He's told them there's affliction and poverty. After lowering their expectations of the hashtag blessed life, after helping them and us keep realizing that the Christian life is going to be hard, he raises their expectations higher than you or I ever would about ourselves and the circumstances that we're in. Jesus says they are rich. But in what sense can he say that? Well, here is where we, again, need to let Jesus' word shape our view of ourselves and our world. Jesus says to Smyrna in verse 10, chapter 2, Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you'll experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Jesus promises that life will be hard, but he promises that the experience of suffering will be limited. 10 days. Now you read that and you're like, man... If that's all he's talking about, I can do 10 days. Like, I'd be up for 10 days of suffering and affliction and poverty. I'll just grip my teeth. I'll sit there and be like, this sucks. You know, and then I'll just get on with it and life will be great. Now, the problem with Revelation is lots of these numbers and figures, they're not literal numbers and figures. They don't point exactly to 10 literal days. The picture is some sort of time frame. But the point is, the time of suffering will be limited. Did you notice when Jesus says that suffering will end? It will be the moment that we get to the point of death and we are given the crown of life. See, even if we experience 
suffering and sacrifice and pain and poverty for our whole lives. Compared to the future Jesus promises you and me, that will be nothing. Ten days in the light of eternity. When 50 billion years, we've got as many more years to look forward to relationship with Jesus and his people and enjoying the crown that he's given us than the day we first started. The problem isn't that we need to reduce our view of how hard suffering is. The problem is we need to let Jesus' word, our big view of him, shape how we view the world and what matters and what our expectation of life now ought to be. This life is a life of sacrifice and suffering, pain and poverty for the sake of the gospel. But this life is just a blink of the eye compared to the eternity that is to come. For the Christians in the city of Smyrna, Smyrna had a, a symbol, a sign, probably a flag or a thing that was there, kind of the, the city's logo. You know what it was? It was a crown. For those living in the city of Smyrna, they had to think about which crown would I live for? Would I live for the life of the city that's in front of me right now, for the flourishing of the world around me, for everything to be nice on the surface that agrees with what the world thinks? Or am I going to take Jesus at his word and live for a life that lasts forever, for a crown that doesn't perish, spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for you? That's the same choice that you and I face every day. Will we live for the here and now? Or will we suffer for 10 days, for the rest of our lives? Will we sacrifice for the cause of the kingdom so others might experience the crown of life? Jesus says to Smyrna in 2 verse 11, The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. And to Philadelphia in 3.11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. There's a saying in Christianity that Christians are people who've been born again. It comes out of Jesus' phrase to Nicodemus in the Gospels, saying that if you trust in Jesus, you've actually been reborn into life. You were born once as, as, as a human and reborn as a new creation. And as God's Spirit comes in you, that then you've got this deposit that guarantees an inheritance to come. It's this fantastic picture of, of what it is to trust Jesus. But the saying goes, if you are born once, that means you'll die twice. And if you're born twice, that means you'll die once. You get it? If, you, if you're born twice, if you, so if you're born once, if you only were born into this world naturally and you're in rebellion against God, then you'll face death and then the second death. You'll, you'll come before the creator of the universe and be judged by him. That's what each and every one of us deserve. But if you trust Jesus, if you come to him, that means you've been born again, born twice. That means that our physical death is the only death we will ever face. In a world full of pain and suffering and sacrifice, Jesus holds out the hope of a crown of glory that lasts forever and says, it's worth it. So then, how do we live lives that are rich in a world that's hell-bent on causing us to suffer? And let's come to my last point tonight. Jesus' command. Jesus' command. Jesus commands them and us three things. And they're the keys to living in his world with the way he views the world. The first one is to be faithful. Be faithful. 2 verse 10. Be faithful to the point of death 
and I will give you the crown of life. Now you hear that faithfulness. Faithfulness is trust, reliance, dependence, trust in my words. Take me at my words. Jesus says, take me at my words so far as the point of death. That's a lot of faithful, right? A lot. Jesus says, don't bow to the the pretend gods of this age. Don't bow down to the pressures of this world to think about, oh, my life will find satisfaction in my career and in my relationships or in the money that I have. Don't think about all those things as the here and now and what matters most as your normal expectations in life. Don't compromise and sell yourself short now. But live for me. Take me at my word. Live according to the crown of life that will last forever. Find true security and comfort and pleasure in what Jesus has done for you. Hold on. Keep going, he says to the church. And he says to us, if you trust in Jesus, don't give up. Don't give in. Keep speaking and living by the word of God as you sacrificially live for the crown that will last forever. How do we live in a world that wants to take us out? Number one, be faithful. Number two, be fruitful. Be fruitful. By holding to the truth, by lovingly proclaiming the message of Jesus, the Jews from the synagogue of Satan will come to him. It's so easy to hate our enemies, isn't it? To look at those that cause us pain and be like, I want nothing to do with you. I'm not even going to do anything nice for you. I'm going to ignore you. I just don't want you in my life. You have caused me so much pain. But look at what Jesus did for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The perfect one took on our shame and our sin and died in our place so that we could be forgiven. As we live in a world that is literally going to hell. 1.6 million people in Auckland. How many of them know Jesus? Jesus says, be faithful and fruitful. Speak the word of God no matter what the cost. Do what you might do. Lay down your life like Jesus did, so that others might be saved. The question for us tonight is, how can you use all of your God-given talent and time and resource and money and comfort to see more of Auckland captivated by Christ, grounded in the gospel and growing in maturity and number? Maybe for you tonight, it's to think through, man, what can I give to this, to this building campaign? Or for you, maybe it's, maybe I shouldn't go forward with this job that I love and, and give it up so that there might be more workers for the harvest so more people will hear the news of Jesus. What's holding you back from those things? What's holding you back from 100% being for Jesus in every area? For me, it's so often security, comfort. Now, I don't want to experience the pain that all those things bring. I want to live the cruise ship life now. But Jesus says that is selling yourself short. For what is on offer is a crown of life that does not end. Where you get to experience the relationship with those that you've pointed to Jesus. Those that you've invested in forever. Forever. Being fruitful means we'll have boldness in sharing the truth of the gospel no matter what the cost. It means we'll have radical generosity. Giving to the kingdom with our time and energy and money. I mean, look at what Smyrna and Philadelphia were facing. The punishment and prison and the afflictions that were coming, and yet they did not give up. They continued proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And through them, God was pleased, though they had little power, or there was anything great about them, 
to open the door of the kingdom, even to their enemies. Be faithful, be fruitful. And the third command Jesus gives us is do not be afraid. See, what's clear from this passage is that comfort and material blessings, freedom from affliction and persecution are not the context of gospel fruit. We say it again, comfort, material blessing, freedom from affliction and persecution are not the context of gospel fruit. Sacrifice and suffering, pain and poverty seem to be the context of God's mission and how he sees the message of his son go throughout the whole world. And that's what we're to expect in the Christian life. And as we live that life, we don't look at ourselves downly and be like, oh, it's so hard, it's such a struggle. We get to say, this is life in its richness. This is the blessed life. Hashtag blessed. Someone just said, I'm an idiot because I believe in a crucified God. Hashtag blessed. I just gave up a holiday so that someone could think about a ministry apprenticeship and actually step into giving it a go for gospel ministry. I just gave up an investment property to see a gospel training hub. I just gave up my career, whatever place it was, so that more people might hear the news of Jesus. Friends, we are rich because we will inherit a crown that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We have a life that cannot be taken. I want to encourage you tonight, if you don't yet know Jesus, come to him and experience that joy of knowing life that does not end, forgiveness that's on offer, relationship with God and his people, and relationship that doesn't end at all. Come and put your life in his hands and trust him. But tonight, if you do know Jesus, let me ask you, are you ready to suffer for holding to the truth of the gospel? Are you ready to go to jail because you want to proclaim the king that you are convinced of? Are you ready to experience poverty and affliction and suffering because of the kingdom of God? Are you willing to sell your house, sacrifice a flashy holiday, commit social suicide by telling your friends that actually you think Jesus created the world and that he loved us and laid his life down for us? Are you willing to... Point everyone you know lovingly and compellingly towards the hope we have in Jesus because that is the normal expectation of the Christian life for those that take Jesus seriously. For these two churches, the kingdom of God was far more important than all the wealth, all the comfort, all the freedom and all the satisfaction this world could bring. And isn't that the same for us today? The kingdom of God, the glory of His name, the advancement of his gospel, the salvation of the city that we live in, the salvation even of our enemies is far more important, is it not? Than anything this world could ever bring us in the 10 days, split sections of our life. Friends, the letters to the churches remind us of who Jesus is. They remind us of how powerful his word is. The reality of what the expectation of life ought to be and the great promise of the future that is to come, of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. So, be faithful, be fruitful, and do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father God, as we hear your word tonight, 
there's a sense where it's daunting to think about the realities of what the expectation of our life ought to be like. We confess that so often we pull back from living truly devoted lives to Jesus because of the persecution and suffering, though be it so small, we experience. We ask that tonight as we see your view of the world, that you would give us great confidence and boldness to not worry about the pain and sacrifice and poverty and suffering that might come, but to live 100% for your kingdom. That we might look to the future of a crown that does not fade or perish or spoil. To look at the great richness of knowing that we've been blessed by your forgiveness and that you've lavished on us as Christians every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we can call you Father, we can call the new creation our home. And would that reality propel us into your world to speak boldly without fear, to speak faithfully of who you are and to be fruitful to take the opportunities with our resources, our time, our energy, our money, to live for you, Lord, we ask tonight that you would use us for your glory in whatever way you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.